scripture reading tonight begins in Matthew 27, verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You! Who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were there crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirits, his spirit. And behold, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Let us pray. Father, How great is your wrath over sinners. It is sure, it is certain, 
and it is solid. We sinners left to our own resources can only, even in our best of times, cause more sin and anger and wrath. We are unable to gain the salvation that we need, but only accrue more charges against us. What great sin to not give glory to a God who is so glorious, to ascribe beauty to one who is so beautiful, to not confess holiness of one so holy, to treat as vacillating a God so immovable. And yet, Father, great and glorious is the news of the gospel. How great is your mercy and grace towards us sinners. You have sent your own Son to make an atoning sacrifice for us, that he might die in our place, taking our sins upon him, that we might be your righteousness. May our songs give you praise. May your word now be spoken and preached in such a way that you are glorified through and by your people. We ask these things for your glory and our good. Amen. Miracles are part and parcel of our religion. Two great miracles. All the other miracles subside to two great miracles. We could use all of them. We could compile all of the other miracles that Jesus ever did. John records that there would be more than enough to fill up all the books in the world. We could put them all together and they would, they would bask in the shadow of the two great miracles, the incarnation and the resurrection. And it's interesting that these are the two pillars of Jesus' life. One, his birth as a man. The other, his rebirth as a new creation. The incarnation is a miracle beyond understanding. We believe that this is where God the Son took on flesh. The eternal God, God of very God, took on flesh and became born as a child. The immutable God, the God who cannot change, took on flesh and grew up. Knew what it was to grow, literally grow. Where the self-sufficient God needed the help and the care of a mother where the all-powerful God learned how to walk. And then the resurrection, where mortal flesh, as Jesus' flesh was when he was first born, put on immortality, where death was destroyed through death, and where creation itself was started anew. In between these two great miracles, there stands one thing that is very unmiraculous, it seems very plain and very simple, something that in some way each and every one of us have experienced vicariously through others and one day, lest the Lord return and tarry until then, we will also likewise experience simple death. But there is a great mystery in the death of Christ. That is what we've come tonight to think through what I would ask, not only tonight that we think about, but that we meditate on it, even waiting for the resurrection. This great mystery embodied in four words. We've read 50 verses tonight, and four small words are all that we will consider. They are words that the Spirit thought was important enough to keep in the original Aramaic, just translated for us, Spoken by me in a way that no one who actually knows Aramaic would ever understand because I'm sure that I am not pronouncing them as Jesus would have, but nevertheless, Eli, Eli, Lamai Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
This is what we will think about tonight. What does it mean for Jesus to have been forsaken by God? What does it mean? Does it mean that he was abandoned by God on the cross? Left there to die without God's protection and overwhelming spirit, without his, his presence and his nearness to the Lord Jesus Christ? Does it mean that God not only abandoned him, but turned in anger and in wrath toward him? Before we get ahead of ourselves, we need to be reminded that there are problems immediately with how many people, perhaps you, perhaps not you, but how many people begin to answer that question. We read and we sang the wonderful song, How Deep the Father's Love. We sang that the Father turns his face away from Jesus. What do we mean when we say that? By singing specifically of the Father there, and by thinking of Jesus as the Son and the Father in heaven, working all things according to the counsel of his will, we can begin to think that what is going on in the crucifixion was the Father in wrath and in anger at our sin, turning upon his Son and crushing him. The God the Father is the, the one pouring out wrath, but God the Son is simply the object, and the Father being the subject. And the confession of forsakenness simply means that the Father is ignoring his Son and his pleas. And somehow God the Father becomes somewhat separated from the Son. He is separated and angry with his Son, seeing him only as sin, treats him as nothing more than sin, to the fullness of his wrath and hell, while the Son only pleads for mercy for those around him. If this is how you have viewed the crucifixion, I would plead with you to not understand it that way. That is nothing less, nothing less than the ripping apart of the Trinity. It is tearing God asunder. If you conceive of the father as wrathful, angry, frustrated, lashing out on his son and furious, looking for vengeance, and that the son is simply passive and meek and asking for forgiveness for others while the wrath of the father is poured out upon him, you, you, you begin to think of the son as filled with grace and mercy while the father is filled with justice and wrath. You don't have one God in three people or one God even here in two people. What you have are two distinct and separate gods with two distinct and separate ends that they are trying to meet out. God the Father wanting justice and wrath. God the Son wanting grace and mercy. Within the Trinity then, their wills wouldn't align. They each want different things. They want distinct things. And what we have is not one God in two persons, but two separate gods who have come together in agreement to accomplish the same ends. Jesus stepping in for us saying, Father, I know that you want to destroy everybody, but don't do that. Destroy me instead. And the God, God the Father in wrath says, yeah, yeah, we'll allow that. Don't think that these types of things are just academic stuff that, it doesn't matter if, if the Trinity is harmed in this. We, we want to somehow get past the academic stuff. Well, listen, I'm telling you, this is not academic. Jesus himself said, you cannot serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other, or you'll love the one and hate the other, but you cannot serve two gods. Listen, if, 
if God the Father is the wrathful one and God the Son is the merciful one, you will be pulled to one of the two. If you are pulled toward justice and obedience, you will be pulled toward God the Father. And you will think that this is exactly what we need to have. You will insist on God's swift and sure discipline for sins. You will insist that every bad thing that happens to someone, every single bad thing is because of God pouring out his displeasure on them. You will begin to be sure and in and of yourselves of your own justice and and of your own boasting in the works that you do. While those who sin simply get what they deserve, you will promote at best selfish boasting and at worst a legalism that threatens the very sacrifice of Christ. Many of you though will simply uphold and love the mercy of the Son. You'll insist that all sins are paid for so why worry? You'll insist that nothing that you can do would ever bring God's anger or his displeasure upon you for your God is a God of mercy you will be sure that Christ always shines upon you, that there is very little that you can do to grieve the Holy Spirit, and that obedience and holiness are, quite frankly, only for those who are prone to legalism. You'll promote worldly living at best, and at worst, a licentiousness that ignores, again, the sacrifice of Christ. Either way, If you think that God the Father is punishing God the Son, and when Jesus utters those words, my God, why have you forsaken me? That that is what is going on. You are downplaying the sacrifice of Christ. You are downplaying it if you entrust yourself to the Father because you think you have obedience and you don't need his sacrifice. Or you will downplay it because obedience doesn't matter and there's no reason for a sacrifice. But friend, you need to know, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, filled with grace and truth, hates and despises your sin as much as the Father does. And that in the end, it is Jesus who rides on a white horse to come to judge the living and the dead with a sword on his side. And as how deep the Father's love is very clear. God the Father loves you just as much as God the Son does. This is seen in that song, in our passage throughout Scripture, in the idea that he has given you his most treasured possession. Jesus' love is shown for you in laying down his life. God the Father's love is shown by giving you his Son. So there's, there's no way to think of God the Father as the one pouring out his wrath. God pours out his wrath upon himself. Jesus, the Son, is just as much the subject of the wrath as he is the object. However, we can also think that somehow, keeping the unity of the Trinity together, that, that God the Son the divine aspect of Jesus somehow is, is treated separately. And, and the real person who is saying this is really just the, the human son. He, he feels abandoned, even though God cannot and would not ever abandon his divine son. Maybe what is happening here is God is abandoning and punishing the human Jesus. This doesn't rend asunder God, simply Jesus Christ. 
it's hard to think of this as meaning that Jesus is anything more than two people. If God treats his divine son differently than he treats his human son, he is acting like they are two distinct people. And you might say, again, this sounds all very philosophical, but it's not. This, this matters. Who died for your sins? Did God the Son die for your sins? Or did Jesus Christ the human being die for your sins? That makes a huge difference. It is hard to make sense of the Bible to answer that in any intelligible way. They both died for your sins because they are both one person. But to think that God the Father somehow kept his son away from the, dis- the, the, the horribleness of the cross is a way to simply rend Jesus Christ well, as two people. If Christ is two people, we lose the great humility of the Son, who Paul says humbled himself, not simply to become a man, but to become a man and die. If we lose the fact that he was actually man, he didn't die for our sins. It's hard to imagine if he wasn't a true man how he could have died at all. And therefore, everything in that beautiful passage of Philippians 2 that talks about Christ giving up his rights as divine and taking on the human form and going and humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, and then being given the name that is above all names. None of it, absolutely none of it, makes any sense at all if you think that God the Son was somehow removed from the Father's wrath or removed from the death that he suffered on the cross. It cannot happen. That means that whatever happened to Jesus happens to both the divine and the human natures. There's two natures and one person. Whatever happens in accordance to one nature happens in accordance to the other. So, these four brief words cannot mean that God the Father abandons his Son, but nor can it mean that God the Son experiences something different than God the human. So what does it mean? I don't know. No, I have a guess, but I don't really know. There's a great deal of difficulty in these words. One of the wonderful things about this is that the early church would have recognized very clearly this difficulty and they didn't do a thing about it. They just left it sitting there, which is glorious. I think the part of our answer comes from what my daughter read when we came in all the way back in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus went to pray and he takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him and he falls down and he proclaims to them that his soul is sorrowful even to the point of death and he falls down praying. And what does he pray? Amazingly, scripture not only records that he is forsaken, but it records that he prays the following words. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Friends, the agony of what was coming to him was not somehow misunderstood by Jesus. It wasn't that he was so divine and so radiant and so full of life that he could waltz through the crucifixion and not feel it as the way we would feel it. His divinity didn't make him above the agony and the grief and the sorrow and the pain of the cross. He knew very well what he was going to experience. 
He knew the darkness and the grief and the sorrow and the distress that was coming his way. And so he looks at his father and he says, if it's possible, let me out of this because this is not what I want to have happen. Again, the tension in those words ought to be striking to us. This is God the Son looking at the Father in the everlasting plan of God, which was founded before the foundation of the world, looking at his Father saying, if there's any way possible, whatever I'm headed toward, let it be different than the thing that I think it is, because if it's what I think it is, I don't want that. He knew that he would feel pain, both emotional and physical. You and I will probably never, ever know the bleakest darkness. We talked this past Sunday about many things. One of those things was doing dishes and how many of you don't like to do dishes and you would never say that you want to do dishes but many of you still do them, or many of you wait until your spouse does them, one of the two. You don't want to do dishes, but many of you find that you do them anyway. The reason why you don't want to do dishes is because no one actually likes to do dishes, but the reason why you do them anyways is because you want something more than that. There's a secondary wanting in that you don't want to do dishes, but there's a primary wanting in that you don't want your spouse to have to do them, or you don't want dishes to just pile up dirty in the sink, or you want to have a clean cup every now and then, so you do dishes, and you want that thing more than this other thing, but that doesn't mean that you don't want to do dishes. You do want to do dishes, but that doesn't take away from the fact that, honestly, you don't want to do dishes. Jesus here is very clear. I don't want the cross. I don't want it. I would rather bypass it. If it's possible, let it go from me. But he does finish that statement by saying, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It's an incredibly interesting thing. But please don't let the fact that he is willing to go to the cross if his father wills it, take away from the fact that he doesn't want it in the first place. He doesn't want it. And the fact that his father wants him to go forward with it doesn't make him not want it any less It is still bleak, it is still dark, and it is still black. The fact that he is willing to do his Father's will does not lessen his desire to escape it. It simply overwhelms it. He wants that more. And it's clear. The Father will not provide for him another way out. There is no escape. Three times Jesus prays this Three times. The same, same man who said, you don't need to repeat over and over again, God hears your prayers. The one who God always hears three times, praise this, take it away from me. There's no doubt by the time the events unfold that Jesus has understood that there is no escape from this. Peter takes his sword, cuts off the servant's ear. Jesus turns to him and says, do you not think Peter, that I couldn't appeal to the Father and he would send me 12 legions of angels? He knows that he could ask for it and he knows that he could get out. But then he attaches onto the end of that. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus knows what the will of his Father is, not because he's mystically the Son of God. 
He knows the will of his Father in a very human way. He's read Scripture. He knows what the Father's will is, and he is willing then to allow himself to go into it. This makes the mocking on the cross all the worse. The people who are there mock him, saying, if he's the Son of God, come down. If you want to, come down. If God was really your God, come down. Jesus is made all the more tense and all the more grief-filled because he does literally want to come down. It is his desire. But he can't because he wants to do his Father's will more. But we need to see something else in this passage. It's not just the darkness of the passage, not just the grief and the anguish and the sorrow, but the immense hope in those four words. I don't seem very hope-filled. But Jesus isn't saying something flippantly. He's quoting scripture again. This time, Psalm 22. And listen to these words. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Notice how he talks there. They wag their heads. The same word that Matthew used to talk about the elders and the scribes when they looked at Jesus, they wagged their heads, saying, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver them. Matthew knows very well what he's doing. He goes on to talk about how bulls encompass him. He says in verse 14 of Psalm 22, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and my clothing they cast for lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. And then in verse 22, the whole psalm turns. No longer is there anguish. No longer is there no hope. No longer is there darkness. But David, or better yet, Jesus says this. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you, 
comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall hear and be satisfied, shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. That psalm that Jesus is quoting is not simply to say that God has forsaken him, but to say that God has not heard his voice. Same voice that prays out to him, take it from me if possible. God hears that literally, but he does not hear it metaphorically. He will not listen to his son's pleas because his son needs to die. But Jesus knows that even in death, there is joy and happiness. The gospels are run through with it. Jesus prophesies three times, not only will he die, but he will be raised again. First Peter says that he, he entrusted himself to one who judges justly, that he knew that his father would judge him justly. He wasn't giving himself over simply to death, but to a God who could raise him from the grave. Hebrews says that he suffered for the joy that was set before him. Jesus utters these words knowing full well that he will rise from the grave and one day he will not only be praised by God in the middle of his congregation, in the middle of this place here today, but that he would go forward in his spirit telling everyone about the glory of what has happened to him. Herein is the mystery of the cross, the grave darkness of the penalty that was due to our sins. The wretchedness, the pain, the sorrow, the destruction, the death, all of it paid out on the cross. Darkest night, bleakest blackness. And carried in the man, Jesus Christ, alongside a man who was assured of hope and spoke of this event with joy and happiness. The dark is true darkness. Darkness you will never understand. The light is true light. And a hope that even here we have a hard time believing in. You shouldn't think that the light of this event somehow makes the dark more palatable. That, that it, it overwhelms the darkness. Indeed, it does overwhelm the darkness, but on the other side of the cross. While on the cross, it is dark and black and bleak but it is still filled with hope and truth and light. The same way that the dark doesn't make, or the light doesn't make the dark any less dark, the dark also does not dim the hope that Jesus Christ has. It stays so bright in him. So let the cross do its work. See the grand evil of sin and the darkness of sin, the anguish that Jesus feels there. See its pain, its punishment, the error of our ways, the horror, the due penalty of wrath and death. But see also the victory and the glory that is there. See Christ's hope, his joy, his endurance, his confidence in his Father, his assurance, his obedience, and his awaiting resurrection. See both. Stand in awe at the mystery of what happens this day as we gather together to think through the nature of what happens at the cross. It is indeed a mystery. We call it good. Good. 
That's weird, guys. We, your sin, killed an innocent man who's not just innocent, but not neutral, but good in every way. Your sin did that. Your sin caused the blackness. Your sin caused the evil. Your sin caused everything that has gone wrong in the world to be wrong. Your sin made it so that Jesus Christ had to go to that cross and suffer wrath and penalty for him. And you have the gall to call it good because God calls it good. It is a mystery. Stand in the mystery. Revel in the mystery. And praise God for the wonderful cross. Let us pray. Father, what love you have for us that you sent your son to die for us. And what hatred you have of our sin, that you would punish your most beloved son for it. Jesus, our Lord, what great love you have for us, that in order to forgive our sin, you would willingly and lovingly die for us. What hatred of sin you have to suffer and die to see it removed from us. What great glory and what beautiful love. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the power and the mystery that we have now spoken of. May you be praised forever and ever. For you are worthy of all glory, power, might, praise, and worship. Amen.